minds with the chip inside I can link it digitized out Which prior to this was higher than science could ever devise This is a neural interface We're gonna stick it in your face Still it in your brain and interlace There's an arms war on and we're gonna win the race Leave everything a race, bring the base Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Now, this is a special edition of DMP tonight, as we're sharing a recording of a talk at the last Body Hacking Con this past January. We're sharing this as a recap of great information that was presented, and as a reminder that the same team behind Body Hacks will be putting on another edition of the Body Hacking Con this coming spring. February 2nd through 4th, 2018, in Austin, Texas, for which tickets are on sale now. For more information, go to bodyhackingcon.com. Now, we look forward to seeing you there for the talks and panels or on the expo floor. Right now, all of us at DMP are gearing up for the DEF before DEFCON here in a couple weeks. Now, the team from Body Hacks will also be there. They have a table at the DEFCON Biohacking Village so be sure to stop by and say hi. But before we share these special clips with you, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. Also, we'd like to thank Axiom VPN, our solution for keeping our traffic on the internet protected and private. To learn more about the services they provide, please go to AxiomVPN.com. Now, if you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us through email at info at dangerousminds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. Um, uh, I'm a biohacker. I've been involved in a lot of different projects, but in the grinding community, I'm primarily considered a kind of medical surgical um, body mod person. Okay. And the um, reality, though, is I'm neither a physician and I'm only a novice body mod artist. There are definitely more experienced uh, modification artists out there, and some are willing to perform procedures like magnet implants, but I don't know of any developing devices or teaching the skills needed to perform procedures. Um, for example, Steve Hayworth is involved with Cyborg Nest and was amongst the first to offer magnet implants, but he really isn't someone most biohackers could call up and ask for advice. Um, I'm also not a surgeon. I work in the medical field, though, and I've been in enough procedures to know that um, neither my skills or knowledge are on par with even a mediocre surgeon. Uh, but surgeons are understandably unwilling to implant homemade devices, and most aren't really uh, even willing to give advice. Uh, I'm not trying to be modest. I am skilled at what I do. However, every time I perform a body mod or give medical advice, I try to emphasize that I'm operating to the best of my knowledge, and my knowledge is limited. Um, I'm usually hesitant to speak in absolutes, but I've been active in the biohacking community for a long time, and I've recently realized something I am absolutely sure about. Someone is going to die. Okay, something at some point will go wrong, and a biohacker will end up dead. Uh, in fact, I'm so concerned with this, I think we need to start using the slogan, biohackers die. Uh, you know, and just humor me on this. Um, grinders are a community committed to radically altering the body. Sometimes this takes the form of treatments using devices like uh, transcranial, uh, magnetic or DC stimulation. Other times it's through the use of previously untested chemicals and uh, sometimes the alterations are achieved through the implantation of devices. Um, what I'd like to focus on today is why despite all these risks being taken, a grinder hasn't died yet. Okay, the majority of you are probably familiar with Tim Cannon and his Circadia implant. Uh, I'm going to read three comments I found posted about Tim. 
Comment one is, you idiots need to look more into the potential side effects prior to doing these things. So uh, this comment shows people assume grinders are ignorant about the risks of what we're doing, and they disregard the months and in some cases even years dedicated to researching a project. Okay, comment two, I guess if you want flesh-eating bacteria, sepsis and such, get one stuck in your body at a chop shop. So on top of being ignorant, apparently grinders are also incompetent. Uh, people assume grinders are doing implants without any regard for sterility or safety. Comment three, when it comes to something like cutting someone's body open, skin open, and putting some foreign object under the skin, then it should be done by professional people, not just people at home. Yeah, this comment is an admission that yes, someone out there does have the knowledge and skills to do the stuff grinders are working on, but the assumption is it's just not us. Um, I think the best way to address these concerns is by showing how much knowledge and skill goes into even the most basic of procedures. Uh, first off, I have to admit, yes, there are grinders performing procedures in their garages. It sounds terrible, unless you've actually been in one of these places. Um, they may be spartan compared to a fully stocked ER, but the ones I've seen are more than adequate. Uh, my procedure room has an overhead surgical lighting system, uh, adjustable procedure chair, all the surfaces are non-porous and wipeable, there's a scrub sink and a positive pressure HEPA-filtered air supply, uh, there's a sharps disposal area, and most importantly, most importantly, the room's set up to be easily cleaned. Okay, now this is usually the first point of contention. Clean isn't good enough, right? Um, for some reason, people think operating rooms are sterile. Um, they aren't. There are three similar concepts people get confused. Sterilization, disinfection, and antisepsis. Um, antiseptics, antiseptics are cleansers intended to minimize the uh, number of pathogens on the skin. You can't sterilize skin. There's no way to eliminate all contaminants without killing your cells as well. Uh, there's a lot of confusion regarding antiseptics. For example, the antibiotic soaps like Dial contain an agent called triclosan. Uh, triclosan is worse than plain soap because it kills some of the bacteria, but doesn't kill the ones that really matter. Uh, staph survives just fine, but you wipe out all the other bacteria that it would have had to compete against. Um, alcohol is also of limited usefulness as it doesn't kill pathogens responsible for diseases like hepatitis and HIV. Uh, most grinders are currently using either a mixture of 70% alcohol with 2% chlorhexidine gluconate or povidone iodine 12%. Either of these are effective antiseptics, and uh, iodine's nice because it's easy to visualize where it's applied. I prefer chlorhexidine because it's been shown to sh uh, have residual action for hours after application. Now, disinfection, this is the application of a chemical which kills the majority of infectious agents on a surface. Uh, operating rooms are cleaned and disinfected between uses. Ideally, an OR would be sterilized, true, but chemical sterilants like uh, formaldehyde or glutaraldehyde, they're toxic and corrosive. Uh, fortunately, there is a disinfectant recommend, recommended by the CDC, which is inexpensive and easy to acquire. It's bleach. Uh, bleach is uh, highly effective at destroying even spores if used appropriately. For disinfection, grinders have been using bleach with a 1 to 10 dilution. Surfaces are kept damp for uh, about 20 minutes, which actually exceeds the CDC guidelines. Um, finally, sterilization. This is the elimination of all life. Sterilization is used for any device or instrument which touches an incision. The two most common methods are steam sterilization via an autoclave or uh, ethylene oxide gas. Eogas is a process most commonly used by manufacturers. It's great because it can sterilize equipment at low temperatures, but it's rather dangerous and expensive to work with. Uh, grinders who only occasionally perform procedures uh, purchase eogas process single-use instruments like these. Um, but those who intend to do procedures more often usually prefer reusable instruments, which need to be processed and autoclaved. Uh, reusable instruments are of much higher quality than disposables. Um, I have two autoclaves. One's a Ritter M9022. The other's a Mountain Gear Steamworks sterilizer. Um, sterilization is achieved by bringing our tools to 120 degrees Celsius at a pressure of 15 psi for between 21 and 30 minutes. 
Now, processing and sterilizing equipment isn't as simple as bagging it up and throwing it in the autoclave. In fact, sterilization techs at hospitals study for around a year to become certified. Tools are first cleaned using special brushes and with enzymatic cleansers, which break down contaminants. Uh, they're cleaned in ultrasonic baths and then treated with lubricants and protectants. Uh, the tools and supplies needed to process surgical equipment somewhat expensive, and it does require a degree of know-how, but this is a basic prerequisite for grinders. Okay? Not a single grinder that I know of has ever contracted a uh, blood-borne pathogen uh, from a biohacking project. You know, this, isn't because gr uh, this is because grinders have collaborated over the last five years to develop the knowledge and skills needed. Uh, okay, so we have a disinfectant area, we have sterile tools, we applied the appropriate antiseptics. At this point, we're both legally and pathologically clean, However, the next topics like antibiotics and analgesics and control of bleeding, uh, we're going to start treading into the kind of legal gray, if not uh, uh, blatant black. Okay, uh, Some of these methods I can't use because of where I live, but I'm going to discuss them because a lot of grinders are using them. Uh, in terms of analgesia, the gold standards, infiltration of lidocaine. Either 1% or 2% lidocaine is fine, but it's important to use lidocaine without epinephrine. The use of lidocaine is actually a lot more common in the body mod community than you'd think, and I've heard artists advocating for the use of epinephrine, but grinders generally avoid it. Epinephrine constricts blood vessels, which uh, is useful to staunch the flow of blood and keep lidocaine in the area longer. In distal areas like fingers and ears, though, epinephrine can do this so effectively you end up with necrosis. Uh, furthermore, epinephrine has cardiac effects. They're just better to avoid it. Um, uh, for magnet implants, most grinders opt to perform a flex, uh, flexor tendon sheath nerve block. Uh, this consists of inserting a 25-gauge needle at a 45-degree angle just distal to the palmar crease. Uh, nerve blocks can stop pain for as long as an hour and a half, allowing ample time for the procedure. Uh, now, another option is to use topical lidocaine gel. Uh, applying 5% topical gel to an area for around an hour provides adequate, though slightly less effective analgesia. Um, usually a minor procedure like fixing a lacerated finger doesn't require systemic antibiotics, but these procedures generally aren't leaving something behind beneath the skin. Some grinders have become, begun uh, pre-medicating with prophylactic antibiotics. The first line antibiotic for such procedures is ANSEF, but most grinders choose clindamycin. The reason for this is uh, as much as 10% of people have an allergy to penicillin, and those with a penicillin allergy are usually allergic to ANSEF as well. Clindamycin doesn't have that cross-reactivity. Uh, control of bleeding is achieved with the use of a tourniquet. You know, most first aid kits now don't even come with tourniquets because their improper use can lead to really serious consequences. Uh, these problems arise either from applying too much pressure, which can damage nerves, or from leaving the tourniquet on too long. Uh, we're fortunate that we don't even have to worry about the pressure because a number of products are now being sold specifically for fingers. Uh, T-ring tourniquets apply less force than traditional tourniquets, and they cost around five bucks. Uh, this combined with the fact that most procedures take less than 10 minutes actually makes control of bleeding relatively safe. These are, there are alternatives, of course, uh, like using a Penrose drain tube. Uh, after the tourniquet's applied, pressure is applied to the finger. It effectively uh, exsanguinates the area, allowing us to work without any blood to obstruct our view. Um, now, so where are we? We have a disinfected area. We've got a sterile tools. We have a clean site. We're pain-free. Antibiotics are on board. Bleeding is controlled. You know, we, we, we're ready to start. Well, actually, first we have to plan where we're going to incise. Um, skin does have a grain, much like wood. Collagen fibers naturally orient in one direction, resulting in what are called Langer's lines. Uh, if we cut in the direction of the lines, we get quicker and more aesthetic healing. Uh, in addition to this, we need to study underlying structures so we can avoid any large vessels or nerves. After we mark out our uh, planned site, we're ready to cut. Okay? Some grinders use large gauge, gauge needles or even injectors to place magnets, but it's more common to use either a number 15 or 11A scalpel blade and a number 3 handle. Scalpel is held with a pencil grip in the dominant hand, while the non-dominant hand provides tension on the skin. 
Okay, the initial incision created slightly larger than the object being planted, and once we've gotten to the subdermis, the artist chooses between sharp or blunt dissection. Sharp dissection causes less trauma to the area, but comes with the added risk of cutting through an important structure like a nerve. Uh, some artists have even developed personalized tools to assist in blunt dissection, although the tips of a pair of Metzenbaum scissors is more than adequate. Uh, at this point, we create a pocket for the implant. Pocket should actually be as large as needed to provide skin laxity. We want some loose skin so that after the implant is placed, the incision can be approximated without being under tension. Now, closing the incision should be performed using a non-absorbable suture like polypropylene and with a 3 8 curvature reverse cutting needle. Uh, one or two sutures are placed using instrument ties. Tourniquet is then removed. We let a small amount of blood out, flushing out the wound. Uh, apply pressure for a minute and the bleeding stops. The wound is then dressed with stereostrips. Uh, healing takes around three weeks. During this time, the focus is on controlling inflammation using ice and ibuprofen. Sutures pulled sometime between day three and seven, after which stereostrips are kept on to prevent reopening. Uh, collagen fibers reinforce the wound after a month, although wound maturation and remodeling could take as long as a year. I, I hope I've gotten my point across. Uh, despite how simple something like a magnet implant seems to be, doing it right requires a lot of work and a lot of research, and grinders are doing exactly this. Uh, believe it or not, that was the short version. We've skipped over a ton. Uh, you know, it's important to learn proper technique to wash your hands. You need to pay attention to selecting the right tools. Um, we didn't talk about how to set up a sterile field or the difference between surgical and exam gloves. I could probably talk for the next hour without exhausting all the considerations that grinders put into procedures. My point is that grinders performing procedures are anything but ignorant and incompetent. Okay, and while there may be safer and better ways to do these things, we're, we're going after that. You know, we're always learning. We're always working to hone our skills. Okay, short of having a physician perform these procedures, there really isn't anyone out there I'd, I'd trust. Um, so why is it that I'm convinced someone is going to die? In 2011, there was a BMG case report titled Body Piercing with Fatal Consequences, which described a man in his 50s who died from a mesenteric infarct secondary to umbilical piercings. This means that over time, his belly button piercing migrated deep into his abdomen and blocked off blood supply. Uh, mesenteric infarcts are on my list of most terrible ways to die. I've seen a few in my career. person shows up to the ER, and they're complaining of abdominal pain and swelling. When they're opened up for exploratory surgery, the GI tract is found to be gray and dead. There is nothing to do. It's already too late. They close the person up and tell them to say goodbye to their loved ones. The patient usually dies within 24 hours, and you know the engineer because they start vomiting feces. Okay. This wasn't a unique situation either. People do die from body piercings. An ABC article in 2009 reported that a 22-year-old man died from multiple brain abscesses related to an infected tongue piercing. 2005, a 17-year-old boy from Britain died of septicemia, which was traced to a recent, recent lip piercing. Okay, I'm convinced someone is going to die because between two and four deaths a year on average in the U.S. occur from shaking vending machines. Okay? Even people who take every precaution and are meticulous about aftercare are taking a risk. A small risk, but nonetheless a risk. And what I'm concerned about is the backlash from that first inevitable death. Okay? The media has been to kind to biohackers so far. A lot of what we've been done has been painted in the most complimentary of lights. You know, people have been sticking metal and whatnot through the skin going back to antiquity. But make it a magnet, and suddenly we're innovators who've invented an extra sense. Okay, ARFID technology goes back to World War II. The healthcare industry even tried in the early 2000s to uh, use ARFIDs to track medical histories. However, biohackers implant them and the media calls us cyborgs. Okay, everything we do gets sensationalized a hundredfold. I've been in an interview and had the journalist ask me the same question in different forms over and over until I finally answered in a way that focused on how risky what we do is. 
We all know if it bleeds, it leads. And let's be honest, a magnet implant is, if anything, safer than a piercing. Uh, we open a small hole with sterile instruments and close it back up. A piercing is intended to remain open and represents a risk of infection even years later. But we've played along with the media and making the procedures we do seem risky. Okay? Um, we've actually been helping to build this narrative, and the higher we build it, the farther we're going to fall when that first death occurs. Uh, we already know what they're going to say, don't we? They're going to say we're too, that we're too ignorant and we should have all locked into the risks of what we're doing. They're going to say that we'll get sepsis and flesh-eating bacteria and assume we're incompetent. Um, they'll say procedures like this should be left to someone else, someone else who has the knowledge and competency to do it right. Uh, the nature of sensationalism means no one's going to write about the 20 minutes I just spent talking to you guys about the relative benefits of disinfectants, okay? What we need to do is def defang the inevitable now. We need to own it now, okay? And as a society, we, we already make decisions about which deaths are okay. Uh, in the U.S., there were over 32,000 motor vehicle deaths in 2014, but it would be ridiculous to talk about banning cars or making a 10-mile-per-hour speed limit. We risk death out of necessity. We obviously need cars, right? Um, we're okay with this, but think about cigarettes. The CDC reported over 480,000 deaths as being uh, cigarette-related. People risk death for short-term pleasure, and we're also, for the most part, okay with this. But what are grinders risking death for? I'm not arrogant enough to think that any of my projects are going to make people immortal or cause any positive sweeping societal changes, but I do believe if these happen, they're going to be because of people like me. You know, they might not even call themselves grinders, but at the very least, they'll be people who share the grinder ethos. Um, we're risking our lives because we hope to create the futures we desire. This is a better reason to die than so Bob can make it to the office on time or to take the edge off uh, at the end of the day, right? Yeah, but being a grinder, I know the risks, and I accept them because I think it's important. I accept that biohackers die. Thank you. Um, thanks, Jeff, for that. Uh, my name is Mark, and my half of the talk is basically building on Jeff's and that somebody is going to die, but it might be worth it. So hear me out on this. Um, sure this is working. All right, so continuing on the theme of procedures, um, after they've left Jeff's laboratory, for example, uh, it becomes less about medical procedures and more maybe about biological and social procedures. Is this it's going? It's okay? Okay. All right. Uh, so an implant is obviously not this one-time thing. It's in your body until you take it out. So what sort of post-implant procedures need to be considered? Uh, but before I get into the thick of this, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of my background to help you contextualize where I'm coming from. Uh, so I have an interdisciplinary academic background in sociology, anthropology, and criminology, uh, specializing in circulations of knowledge and social control. Um, but I'm also a grinder. I don't think I'm a particularly good one. But a couple things that I've worked on are uh, subdermal armor, uh, which I worked on with Jeff, and I'm currently working on a, uh, a contraption that allows you to adjust your drunkenness immediately. I'm going to talk about these a bit more later, I think. Um, so my latest research interest, uh, back to the acad academic kind of thing, is on uh, cross-cultural senses, and in, particularly, uh, and in particular sensory modification. So when I say I'm going to be talking about post-implantation procedures, I don't just mean the physical and material outcomes, but also some of the social consequences, um, and they're related, and I think that's why they're important. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is, um, briefly, I'm going to talk some of the less discussed effects of body modification, and in particular, sensory, mod sensory modification to show why it's important in general. And then I'm going to get to specifically why I think grinding is important and building and modifying senses um, is important by addressing some of the, the common criticisms that I hear through the work that I do um, from other people. So the first thing, what's the big deal about senses? Uh, we all have more or less the same senses, but how they're used 
and regulated and conceptualized and valued um, va uh, varies historically from culture to culture. Um, so obviously senses are an important aspect of how our, uh, we develop historically. Uh, a couple of quick examples. Canada, where I'm from, uh, largely exists the way it does today because Europeans like the feel of fur. Um, from the 15th to the 17th century, pain, uh, pain, Spain, Portugal, England, and Holland fought wars over spices. Um, in every cinnamon bun is a little trace amount of the, uh, the blood of the Portuguese. But as we learned in Dune, the spice must flow. So uh, if, you want a more, if you want a more recent example of a, a newly discovered sensory experience that's sweeping the nation, you could think about something like crystal meth, right? That's a battle that's playing out. It's very complicated. Uh, so the discovery of things, my point is, uh, is to sense something is to quickly open up these political disputes that may surround the distribution of what is allowed or considered sensible. So senses are also important to how we organize and are organized in our day-to-day -day lives. So in this classical sociological study, uh, Pierre Bourdieu, a French guy, examined how people came to distinguish their sensory experiences. Um, taste develops from infancy, um, but it happens differently for different people. So for example, which, which foods are uh, consumed and normalized is largely a function of income, is what he found in the 80s in France. So low income means less expensive food out of necessity, uh, but this is also accompanied by a culture of how to present and eat that food. Um, so as a result, people who grow up in lower income you know, homes are unlikely to know how to act like a rich person. And likewise, a rich person is likely going to have difficulty fitting in with the common people uh, as a result. So the upper class see the lower class as culturally naive, and the lower class see the upper class as pretentious. Uh, so taste, his point is that it's uh, largely unintentionally learned behavior uh, that seems natural to the taster. Um, perhaps you felt this awkwardness when making cultural missteps while traveling. Um, obviously, Pierre Bourdieu was a French guy, and so they have like this deep-seated hatred uh, between classes that's a lot more apparent than it is here. I think I'm not from here, so maybe I shouldn't say that, but I mean, they did have almost a revolution like 40 years ago. But anyways. Um, uh, his point was that the way you end up using your senses is tied to its social context, at least in uh, no small part, uh, such as education or socioeconomic mobility. Uh, so it's not just how they're used, but how it's legitimate to use your senses. Uh, the most obvious example I can think of is sex. Um, I don't have any like, peer-reviewed journals to back me up here, but it's unquestionably a sensory experience, as I understand it. Um, so, which I think everyone can agree with is, is highly regulated on multiple levels, right? Even who, uh, who gets to know and when and where and how and at what time of night on what channel you can see these things or talk about these things. It's all regulated. But you can also think about other sensory experiences that are supposed to be, for example, uh, shameful, like farting in an elevator or listening to Nickelback. <laughs> so while the government has an influence via laws and rights, we also regulate ourselves, right? I mean, a few people at least laugh at that horrible Nickelback joke, but like, how did you come to understand that Nickelback's a shameful thing? Uh, the government never told you that, even if maybe they should. Um, so shameful, the shamefulness is brought about by like, a social process that is once again centered on the political distribution of the sensible. So my point is that the way that we organize our lives is around our senses. I don't think that's a very you know, controversial. Um, and even though my senses are my own, though, I may not necessarily fully understand everything they do, how they got this way, and how far the consequences extend. So now I'm going to get into grinding, which is why we're all here anyway, I think. Um, so when it comes to being a sociologist, I guess I take that pretty seriously. Uh, but when it comes to being a grinder, I'm a bit of a jackass. Um, so my interests as a grinder are in disrupting these kind of taken-for-granted uh, nature of our senses. It's something I do basically because I think it's fun. I think it's fun to go around and do things that you weren't able to do before. I imagine it's a lot like tasting cinnamon for the first time for those Portuguese people. Um, so my latest research uh, combines my academic and grinder interests to examine how creating and modifying senses works out. 
And through this research, I've been in fairly frequent contact with a number of grinders about their projects. So I feel like I can share with you some follow-up on what Jeff was talking about, uh, about procedures. And hopefully suggest why grinding to fine senses is important, even if no wars have been fought over tiny magnets yet. Uh, so I want to point out a couple quick things. First of all, I don't make any money off this, so I'm going to address a couple criticisms that I commonly hear about grinders or grinding, and I think it's going to be an honest appraisal based on my own experiences, but also as well th as things I've learned from other grinders. Um, I definitely don't speak for grinders, though. I'm giving you my opinion, which is informed by things I've heard from them. But this doesn't mean they're going to agree with me. So uh, the first main complaint that I often hear when I present uh, the sort of research that I do is that uh, implants seem kind of extreme for not much gain. Simple things like magnets uh, just don't seem worth it. Um, so there aren't that many articles written about what happens six months or you know, two years after somebody gets a magnet implant. Um, do they still love it? Do they hate it? Or do they forget about it? What are the outcomes? Like, what does it actually do for them? Is it worth it? And I think this is actually a really complicated question. Uh, for the most part, for something like magnets, yes, people really do love them uh, even much later, but they don't love them unconditionally. And for a lot of grinders, the magnet itself is maybe not even the point. Uh, right now, uh, the kinds of things we're working on, it's more about finding out how certain systems work together. Uh, you have to find out ways to successfully put things inside your skin. Uh, and this is mostly about finding the right coatings uh, for a particular application. Um, so maybe the magnet isn't exactly the point uh, for us all the time. But whether it works is obviously still uh, it's important, right? The outcomes are different for different people, however. So other than death or illness, um, the worst case scenario is usually rejection. Uh, certain things, it's obvious why it's going to reject. Yeah, you don't follow proper procedure. You do everything that Jeff said not to do. You don't do the things he said to do. Maybe you coded it in something stupid or not at all, which I've heard of. Um, maybe you hit it with a pan, or maybe you accidentally cut yourself and it falls out. Um, these are things that you don't really always think about ahead of time when you're going to put something in your skin. Um, but knowing why it rejects is sometimes difficult. Uh, people tend to blame the procedure or the aftercare, but it also could be body chemistry. It could be a number of things that we haven't even thought of. I have a friend who can't wear a wristwatch because the, uh, the acidity of his skin or his sweat uh, just corrodes it immediately. And he can watch that happen, but if it's implanted inside you, you can't watch it happen, so that makes it uh, quite a bit difficult. And as a result, if you want to diagnose a new coating, you have to put it in, wait a few days, cut it out, look at it, put another one in, wait a few weeks, and so on, building it up. So even if it doesn't reject, however, we still have to figure out like a maximum placement for uh, the greatest efficacy. Uh, if you take the placement of a magnets, for example, it actually comes down to, I think, um, a decision between discoverability versus annoyance. So the most common spot to put a magnet is in your non-dominant hand on your third finger on the outside, and some people on the inside is also kind of common. And you put it there because it's out of the way. You can still grab things. You can go about your day and do uh, most of your you know, common tasks without it getting in the way. And I have one there, and I like it there. Um, uh, it's very, uh, uh, it's not annoying in any way, but at the same time, I also have one in my thumb, which I catch on things all the time, and I find that I, um, I discover a lot more about uh, the magnetism and the magnetic spectrum of the world out there um, because it's in this spot that actually gets in my way a lot of the time. So when you're choosing a spot, it, uh, e there's pros and cons to different places for it, and we're still kind of figuring out um, which ones work best. Oh, I have also have, uh, I know some people that have put magnets in their bodies and lost them. They can't find them and they want to take them out and they cut themselves open and they're looking around and so like you just, you can forget about it and actually it forgets about you too. 
Um, so uh, these things are difficult to predict. I've seen people with sausage fingers where they implant a magnet and it's, it's still sticking out a quarter of an inch and it gets in their way and they play with it and it starts to feel like it's bruised. Um, for other people, they put a magnet in and it's, you can barely tell that they even have one. And you really don't know until you try. Um, sometimes it hurts, like if I catch my thumb one while like, if a zipper gets caught, it's painful like very briefly, but I don't think it's a big deal. It passes just as quickly as it comes and it's really not that bad. Um, so uh, I'm still actually talking about like really tiny things in the body. I'm using examples of magnets because they're the most common thing. Um, but if we're going to end up going full cyborg, as some people want, uh, what about larger things that you put in your body? This is partially the reason that uh, Jeff and I built the subdermal body armor, is to test how much abuse the body can take when you put uh, uh, an implant in under ideal conditions. So we made a number of prototypes, uh, and we settled on putting a non-Newtonian sponge core sealed in Pharmed BPT tubing. So the non-Newtonian sponge basically is really soft and pliable and uh, comfortable when you're not hitting it, but as soon as you hit it on something, it turns really hard. Uh, we ripped it off of some motorcycle armor. Um, and so after we implanted it, it was about the, the prototype was just uh, two or three inches, and we put it into my forearm. Um, and uh, I wanted to have it in a position where I could use for maximum like karate chopping. And for the most part, it worked uh, uh, pretty well. Uh, I ended up, a few, you have to, first of all, I had to wait, like, wait uh, three or four weeks for it to heal because you can't just go ahead and karate chop right away. Uh, and right towards the end of that period, I ended up doing some urban exploration where I was running around in some uh, tunnels. And I bashed it on a lot of concrete, some exposed rebar, it even got cut. Um, and it, it ended up migrating a little bit. Uh, I can't actually remember which direction it migrated. I can see the two scars, but I don't remember which one's in and which one's out. But they're like, uh, they're like a half inch or three quarters of an inch apart. And so then it wasn't in an ideal position for karate chopping anymore, which kind of made me sad. So it's something that we're still working on, figuring out how to um, you know, nail down um, a shape that's going to work properly. Uh, but ultimately, this, this affected the final testing when I karate chopped some bricks. Um, and direct hits worked really well. Uh, they didn't hurt at all. I thought it was actually pretty, uh, pretty cool. I thought it wasn't going to work. It was kind of just for a laugh. But that was pretty cool. I'm, I'm going to work on it some more, I think. Um, but if you hit it indirectly, there was a pretty sharp pinching pain. So yeah, we need to work on a way to hold things together. Um, so whether people like their implants, my point is, is that after a period of time, it really depends on their placement and how it works out for your individual situation. Um, and that brings me to my second criticism of grinders, which is uh, quite a bit more abstract. And it's that they haven't really come up with much that's new. Uh, magnets and RFIDs have been around for a really long time, and there's been you know, a couple of really cool things, particularly by Grindhouse, um, that have come up. But for the most part, uh, it's taking a long time to get things out. So why is this so hard? Um, in addition to the fact that we're still figuring out these systems, it's really difficult to fully appreciate their potential, I think. Uh, so if you take magnets again, uh, since they're the most popular sensory mod, um, you do get an almost immediate sense of electromagnetic fields uh, that's quite rewarding and it feels good. Um, but what use is it beyond feeling good or picking up tiny screws or winning bar bets? Um, well, for a lot of grinders, that's totally worth it right there already, um, <laughs> myself included. Um, but I think that magnets are actually only scratching the surface of their, uh, their potential for three reasons. I don't know that all of these are going to pan out or anything, but I think that they're worth looking into. Uh, so the first reason that we're only scratching the surface is um, that we just don't have enough practice yet. Uh, Colin Blackmore, or Blakemore, of Cambridge University did this experiment where he raised kittens in cylinders. 
And in the different cylinders, he had painted on different patterns. And so one kitten was raised in a cylinder that had only horizontal lines in it, and one was raised with only vertical lines. And then he would let them out, and he would play with them. Uh, and if he held a stick vertically, the vertical striped a cat would play with it. And if he held it horizontally, the horizontal cat would play with it. Um, but the other cat, the one that wasn't you know, the right orientation, would, quote, look about vacantly. So there's similar, though inconclusive, evidence for magnet implants. Uh, some people that I talk to say that everything feels the same. Uh, but others have a, a number of uh, ways of describing how their magnets work for them. So one person who had his implants, uh, with a, he had a particularly strong magnet implanted uh, like five or six years ago, so quite a bit before uh, most people, especially myself. Um, he had a lot of ways of describing the way uh, magnetic fields can feel. He talked about screaming cables, um, fuzzy bubbles, wires that whisper, or leaky wires. Um, eventually, he just ran out of adjectives and started making noises for things that felt different ways, like whoop and shk. He's like, That's, that feels like that. And it was uh, pretty interesting. Um, so like kittens, maybe we're just not exposed to these new patterns uh, in a way that we can make them sensible yet, and it's just going to take time. Um, the second reason I think we might be only scratching the surface is that our senses are possibly limited by our language, uh, and this has real consequences. So I don't know if you've heard of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. It was a semi-popular, uh, exaggerated plotline of the current blockbuster movie Arrival. Um, and basically what it states is that the structure of language determines or greatly influences our behavior. So for example, there's a study published by the National Academy of Sciences that showed that there are two words in Russian uh, for different shades of blue where English only has one word for it, and that Russian speakers are faster dis at discriminating between these two shades than English speakers are. So it seems that words can prime parts of the brain to work better. Um, so how might words affect grinding uh, out a new sense? Well, how are senses limited by language is the question. It's a difficult question, that's why this is kind of uh, disputed or controversial. Um, one thing you think about is uh, how many senses do you have? A lot of people say that they have five senses, and this goes back to Aristotle, or if you want to be really accurate, it goes back to Heraclitus, but it doesn't matter because Aristotle made it popular. Um, anyways, uh, so he, um, basically his system is that you have a dedicated uh, receptor for each sense, so you see with your eyes and hear with your ears and so on. Uh, but even by that definition, you would also have proprioception or a vestibular sense, and um, some people would even argue for a vomeronasal sense that you smell pheromones. Now the difficulty with that is that um, because it produces no con conscious reaction, uh, people don't know whether it works or how exactly it would work in a human. Um, beyond that, the sense of touch involves different receptors for pain, cold, heat, and pressure. So is that one sense or four sense? Other senses work together, like your sight, or sorry, uh, like sound, uh, sorry, like touch and sound at a loud concert. And sometimes they contradict each other, like sound and sight in the McGurk effect. I don't know if you're familiar with the McGurk effect. We should definitely look it up on YouTube because it's a really trippy way of uh, ruining your oral sense with your visual sense, and they contradict. Um, so you can't even really separate them sometimes. So what is a sense? It's not really a settled idea. And so our language about what we're actually trying to do or how we think about it might be holding us back. Um, to kind of drive this point uh, a bit further, consider a, a trickier kind of sense maybe. Once you get out of this five sense, uh, that you have five senses, think about your sense of time. Um, how do you make sense of time on a sensory level Certainly your body has all sorts of reactions to the cycle of the sun, like production levels of vasoactive intestinal peptides. Um, but how does your language affect your understanding of it? In some cultures, instead of having a past, present, future orientation that they talk about, uh, they conceive of time as an oscillating uh, opposite. So you have day and night, but you also have now and not now instead of past, present, future. Um, so recently I was reading some ethnographic research published by the University of California Press. 
Um, and it really showed that this can have like some huge consequences. Uh, the, the study was about this crisis and the rising suicide rates of the Inuit of Baffin Island. And the government was throwing tons of money at it, trying to tell them, you know, you have this promising future, you have this promising future, don't, uh, and, you know, trying to work people towards that kind of um, response. And it didn't work at all, uh, because uh, in that culture, they don't conceive of the future in the same way. They, they see it as now or not now. Um, so they don't have a future like we see it, and using those words actually, or not being able to use those words, completely affects the way that you think about time. Um, so, if we're trying to figure out new senses and how they work with existing senses, or how their outcomes might take a while, uh, this might be, um, you know, this might be a long time and it might take a lot of experimentation. We shouldn't assume that we all experience senses in the same way. Um, the final reason I think we might be only scratching the surface of uh, senses is uh, something called the cogn uh, cognitive penetration theory, and this goes back to um, research that was done in the 40s, and I think the most recently I've seen it reproduced is in 2007. It's also fairly unsettled, though, because it's really trippy. Um, so the cognitive penetration theory states that one's perceptual experience and the content of those perceptual experiences are influenced by your thoughts, beliefs, desires, and other states of the cognitive system. So the, um, for example, one of the, the types of research that uh, comes out of the Center for the Study of Perceptual Experience in the, at the University of Glasgow talks about this experiment where they take paper that is uh, bright orange, and then they cut it into a number of shapes. And some of those shapes are things that we uh, commonly associate with red, like an apple or lips or a heart, like you know, that stereotypical heart. And then they would have a screen that would go up behind the test subject, or in front of the test subject, sorry. And it has a dial that goes from yellow to red. And remember, the paper is orange. And so they're instructed to hold uh, an object in front of the, the subject, and then they have to turn the dial until it's indistinguishable, indistinguishable between the two colors. And when they would hold up an object that's traditionally red, even though it's completely orange, the person turns the dial until the back of the screen is red, and they say it's indistinguishable. Now, the thing that sucks about this is that once you know about it, it doesn't work, right? So I've just ruined it for all of you. I never get to try this experiment. And that's why it's kind of controversial, because you can, you can set these things up in a laboratory, but you can't really test their effects very easily. You can't set up an experiment in the real world for these things. But if we um, come to learn about uh, how we experience the world in these kinds of ways, it actually really throws a lot of stuff off. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying about that French guy, Pierre Rodieu, uh, that your social experience really affect how your senses work. Um, you might even think about tasting expensive wine uh, being a good example. They've done a lot of studies on people being primed for that to taste better. Um, and also, I can give you like an anecdotal evidence. When I got my first magnet, I was actually, unlike a lot of grinders, very patient, and I didn't use it. I waited for it to heal, and then one day I woke up and I thought to myself, today, I, I, you know, I bet my nerves have healed, I'm gonna see. And so I, I had a fan beside my bed, and I turned it around so it would blow the other way, and I turned it on, and I, for some reason, I like retracted all my other fingers, and I only held the magnet finger up as if these were gonna interfere somehow. It was the, I had just woken up, so like, give me a break. But uh, so I held the one finger up and I, I felt a breeze and I was like, oh, I only feel the breeze. I guess it didn't, uh, it hasn't healed enough yet. And then I realized, well, why am I holding my other fingers? And there was no breeze on the other fingers. So I was kind of, you know, cognitively uh, primed to think that I was going to feel a, uh, a breeze, but that was actually the magnet vibrating, but that's how my mind initially interpreted it. Um, so having looked at some of these biological material and social processes of post-implantation, I returned to the question, is grinding worth it? Well, I guess that really demand, uh, it, it uh, depends on worth it to whom. Um, to die, um, you know, I, I probably don't think so. Other people definitely disagree. They think it's uh, you know, a very uh, important thing to do. Um, and I've only really talked about magnets, but this applies to any other sense that we're currently developing. 
Uh, we have to get over the things we already know to find ways to know things that we didn't know were knowable. So, I mean, that's what we're up against, right? It's not, if you could even understand that sentence, you're like halfway there probably, because uh, I don't, and I wrote it, so. Um, so someone's going to die, but I actually think it's important. Um, I don't think it's important enough to encourage people to get involved, but I do encourage people to support it, at least. Um, uh, enough people died for cinnamon, I guess, so I mean, was that worth it? <laughs> um, I don't know, really. Um, so the distribution of the sense is ultimately a, a political question, and so for it to be undertaken by grinders as opposed to private industry, like what Cory Doctorow was talking about, I think is really important. Um, it's fun to engage in something that, you haven't, that hasn't been overtaken by regulation as well. So yes, you can die from it, but yes, you could also die from overregulation, right? If you live to 100 uh, by regulating every aspect of your life um, to avoid risk, I mean, that to me is like a messed up sense of time, you could put it. Um, so you can disagree with me, and you probably will, but um, I guess my point is that senses don't uh, happen all at once. They happen, uh, it's, a, it's a historical question, it's an instantaneous question, but it's also a question of the future and alternative ways of trying to understand what actually we're, we're trying to get at. And I didn't even get into any evolutionary stuff either, so about how senses developed. So it's actually really, really complicated, and that's why I'm so excited about it. Uh, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, we're going to take some questions if uh, Jeff wants to come back up. Right. So, uh, what do you think of that? <laughs> Thanks, Bird. Yes. So, as we kind of hijack these senses and that kind of great secondary, tertiary senses, what we have, right. do you believe or what are your thoughts on um, future generations already having these? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to give the same answer that uh, Cory Doctorow gave, that when you're predicting the future is a, a, a tricky business. Um, who knows what's going to happen? Um, it's, and like everything I mentioned, it, it may not pan out at all, and nobody's going to care. And we'll, we'll get magnets, and we'll do bar tricks, and that's, that's where it ends. Um, I don't think so, though. Um, who knows? Because um, think about things. Don't think about, if you don't think about your senses as actual uh, physical things, if you think about them more as a relationship to the world, uh, and you think about the problems that you have now that are insensible, things you can't make sense of. Um, so if you wanted to sense, like, uh, a really practical example would be, like, um, carbon dioxide leak. You can't feel that, but that's something that, you know, threatens you because you live in a confined space, maybe. Um, I had another ex uh, example that I've now forgotten. Uh, oh, okay, uh, to, to plug dangerous things, the, their uh, Vivo, Vivo key that's coming out, um, a sense of digital identity. Um, once you start thinking about relationships to how you understand the world as a sense instead of, you know, appendages, um, it actually opens up a lot of uh, a possibility for when you're thinking about sensory modification and future projects. So the Vivo key, if anybody doesn't know, it's like an encrypted, um, implantable, I don't even really know how to describe it. Can anybody do a better job than me? It's, uh, uh, anybody? <laughs> Yeah, it's a two-factor authentication key that you implant, and it basically uh, secures your digital self in your physical self in a way that um, fingerprints can't or even optical scans can't. Um, so I think that's really promising and exciting. It's like a really e excellent uh, practical example that's actually coming up soon.
you want to say that? Or? Yeah, sure. Um, okay, well, yes. And um, to- oh. oh, sorry. Yeah, he was saying, would we consider um, you know externals like wearables to be you know the equivalent in terms of being like a enhancement of sensation, right? Did I get that right? Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really, that's the thing is, um, uh, that's kind of a weird thing in grinding because there's, you know, we always kind of try to jump to the solution of putting it in your body just because that's, you know, that's why we do it. Uh, but no, I mean, that's actually the reason why um, I think that magnets and ARFIDs are kind of uh, so popular and, you know, a lot of the other stuff hasn't taken off as much is because of the fact that um, they sh- need to be in your body. I mean, the point is, is I, you can't leave without your keys if they're implanted in your hand, you know? And the same with the magnets is, uh, we don't have anything that you can wear that's the equivalent of that, you know? I mean, it really is dependent upon being implanted, whereas, you know, other senses of uh, things like, I don't know, uh, you know, the belts that do north and things like this, or that kind of stuff, oh no, I mean, that's totally, uh, that's totally valid, um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be implanted, so, um, you know, but it's the same thing, and uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think it would have the same effect overall. Um, yeah, and I'll just add that uh, those three points that I made at the end there about cognitive penetration and those sorts of things, if they're implanted, you can't, uh, t- well, maybe not if you can't turn them off, but if you don't turn them off and if they're continuously with, continually with you, if they become ubiquitous in your life, I think that there's a lot more chance of discovering like the full extent of the potential. And if you're just taking it off or if it runs out of batteries and if you get bored of it and you put it in a drawer, obviously none of this is going to happen. Um, you know, uh, that's a, a question that I'm currently weighing out myself. Because the thing is, is uh, when I first started doing procedures, you know, I didn't start from I'm a body mod artist or a piercer or something. I started from like I'm watching people on the internet, you know, um, showing, doing procedures, cutting their fingers open with like totally inappropriate tools in like a dirty kitchen, you know. And like seeing this, I'm like, oh, dude, I, I'm, you know, I don't know how to do this, but I'll tell you what, that's not the right way. And so, you know, I, I'd like to have this procedure done. I'm not going to pay like 500 bucks for somebody to do it because it's like I, I know it, you know, I, I know it could be done, you know, relatively easily. So I started, you know, looking into doing it. And now it's kind of, um, that's what I'm looking at. It's uh, uh, really, should it be done by someone who's, you know, a professional? You know, is it okay to do some of these procedures at home? Which ones are okay? I mean, when you think of like the RFID injections, they're so simple. I don't see a reason why someone wouldn't want to do an injection on themselves. You know, when you take out a scalpel, then you know that starts getting to a point where now it's like, you know, uh, do I want to do this myself? Some people may feel comfortable, you know, and at that point, it'd be like, okay, well, let's talk about it, and maybe I can give you some pointers if you're going to do it anyways, and I can stop you from maybe messing yourself up. I, I, I don't know. So the thing is, is, I mean, I guess that's the thing, is, is being acceptable to kind of be the broader, you know, people are doing this. I don't think there's ever going to be a point where anybody at home is just like, oh, yeah, we keep our, you know, our implantation kits over in the bathroom, you know, with the medicine cabinet, and go ahead and catch yourself up, dude. You know, I, I don't think we're going to ever really get to that point. But, um, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing because, you know, the difference being talking about robotics being accessible and stuff like that is you usually um, aren't dying from robotics if you mess up, you know? Um, whereas it can be dangerous. And of course, death, I'm going to the most extreme. More likely it's going to be, you know, you end up, 
uh, losing a finger or you end up with a nasty infection or you know you give you know uh, a hepatitis B to your buddy or something you know it's like well I mean those are horrible things but it's like you know these these are large risks you know um, so I mean it's kind of I'm still kind of weighing that out you know just should should it be exclusively people who are professionals and trained and and you know really know what they're doing or is it okay to work on yourself um, I don't know <laughs> I mean I started as a schmo who didn't know anything and I do a lot of procedures now so I don't know I mean like if I hadn't you know gone on the route to try to do it but I don't know what's the normal pathway to get there you know before you are okay to do it I mean I don't know Um, well, I've, I, uh, people have done the, the gluing a magnet to your fingertip for, or to your fingernail. I've actually never tried it, so I, I don't think I can make an, a full, honest uh, appraisal of that. But in your finger, I, I assume, and from, from what I've heard from other people, uh, it's quite a bit more sensitive once it's under your skin. Um, as far as other reasons to do it, um, measuring biometrics um, is a lot different under the skin than above the skin. Um, I don't know, you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess, uh, for example, it. yeah. Not, yeah, not, I, not I, losing I, it, having <laughs> it being ubiquitous, trying to find these extra things, being surprised. If you're into it for the, the exploration of a city, I mean, Pokemon Go was really popular for a minute there. Um, and this is basically like that. You go somewhere and then all of a sudden, like yesterday I found out that American change is not magnetic uh, and Canadian change is, so I can't do half my bar tricks now. It sucks. Going back to Canada tomorrow, make some money. <laughs> at the bar, at least make some beer, but like the, the discovery is part of it, sorry to interrupt you there. Oh no, totally. Uh, yeah, and uh, another thing is, is like for example with the, um, with the like NFCs, for example, like I, uh, I have my work badge online, so you know, I, I work at a hospital, so everything is, everything is connected to your badge, you know, it's like every door you go through, every, every place you go, you know, pulling meds, doing whatever, um, it's just really simple to use. I mean, that, that is um, something that it's really, it's a, a great convenience that a wearable, it's like, well, I have the wearable, it's here, it's a badge. <laughs> you know, I could use it, but I actually end up using my hand a lot more. And I think with the magnets, like he was saying, it's, if it was something you had to wear or think about, um, you wouldn't necessarily use it. Whereas, I commonly with magnets, it's like you run into things, oh, whoa, what was that? You know, and it's, it, it ends up just uh, occurring when you're not expecting it most, and that's when it's kind of a lot of fun, um, I think. Uh, going back to the convenience thing, too, it's convenient for particular kinds of people. So RFIDs for him makes a lot of sense, but I'm basically homeless and I live in a car, and I trade that car in every couple of years for something else, so I'm not going to go all the trouble of fixing up my car to, you know, unlock it. I don't have, like, I'm not especially gainfully employed. I work for a university, but they don't have, like, up in Canada, we don't really use that as much as they do in the Silicon Valley, for example. So it's, it's not worth it for me. Um, some things are going to be good for some people, some things aren't. No problem. Uh, you can use the next, I think. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, actually, I was using a default solution. It's usually 70% alcohol, I believe. It's 70% alcohol with. Uh, uh, actually, I'd have it in my notes. Um, Those are mine. Oh, Sorry, your notes. Over there. Yeah. Uh, I think it was 2% um, chlorhexidine uh, gluconate. Oh, let me double check. Here we go. Oh, it was 70% alcohol with 2% chlorhexidine gluconate. Yeah, that's, but that's um, usually when you buy it, that is the percentages they go in. 
you know. And I, you know, I got really detailed on these things. And uh, in reality, it's uh, uh, the point of the of being so detailed was not to bore you, but rather to try to point out that it's like there is quite a bit to this. You know, um, there are other percentages. There's higher percentages. For example. Um, uh, if you go to an OR now, uh, a lot of the hand scrubbing and stuff that like, you know, I've really been advocating for and like having people in the community like, yes, five minutes, man, you got to do it this with it. And it turns out now they have like a, a really strong version of chlorhexidine. So the surgeons are like walking in and just like, that's it. You know, and it's like, that's the, that's the new version of the hand scrub, you know. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Three rows in front of you there. Uh, it's multiple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So uh, you probably read about Rich Lee. Rich Lee is the guy who had the magnet implants put into his, uh, into his ears. Um, he's, I think, in the other room right now. I'm salty he didn't come in here. No, but uh, no, Rich Lee uh, had a magnet. They're tragus implants and they vibrate. Um, I think he's, uh, last night he was even talking about them, where he is um, relatively happy with them. I think that um, he said that he would like the volume to be a little higher, and he's tried to tweak to find a way to make that happen. Uh, there's a number of other, pe other people who've gotten it, though, who said they're, they're very happy with the, with the volume of it. Um, okay, and then that, of course, is like a passive thing. You don't have any circuitry or anything. It's really a coil that you're wearing that's driving him. Whereas, uh, okay, Ben Beasy, um, he's been working on, uh, what, what, what's the name for it? Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, which is essentially is uh, Bluetooth, right? It's uh, Bluetooth can interact directly with your phone, you know, and uh, it would be implanted under the skin. Um, it's, you know, rechargeable through the skin using uh, induction charging and, and all that fun. So um, now in terms of the bone conduction, that one's the kind of weird point on it. And this is where um, as I'm like, you know, building up my space and I'm like doing more projects, you know, I'm trying to figure out where I want to draw the line, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, anything under the skin doing subdermal stuff, it's like, oh, it's relatively easy, you know. When you start talking about getting into bone, though, that's where I'm kind of, do I want to cross this line? Because it's not a normal, generally, endeavor you do with piercing, and the risks are entirely different, and you're, you start going up there. So, you know, while uh, Ben's, you know, it actually would vibrate um, even through the skin if you held it up, as opposed to being uh, whatever, and you're getting the same, I, same result as bone conduction would be, but it's not going to be the same as if you actually had a, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, basically the hearing aid thing with the bone conduction system that sits outside. I forget the name off the top of my head, but I mean that actually is drilled. Yeah, cochlear implant is what I'm thinking of. And yeah, I mean that actually is directly into bone. Um, and it comes with certain risks, you know, and I, I, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable drilling into someone's head like that, you know. Um, I think that's usually proprietary stuff too. Yeah. Um, from what I've heard. Uh, there was another question over here earlier. I don't know if it still exists. Mm -hmm. 
Sure. Um, yeah, and that's that's uh, largely what the government tried to do in that case that I was talking about um, with the suicide on Baffin Island. Uh, but at the same time, you can think about... Um, uh, I, I try to imagine a world where the time is considered as now or not now. I find that incredibly difficult to, under, uh, to conceive of a world where there's no future because I haven't thought of it yet. Um, and it's really difficult to change the way you think about things that have been uh, normalized in your body. Mm -hmm. Pardon me? So you have the words for them, is what you're saying? Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I agree that it sounds it sounds that that it should be that simple, but in practice, um, from decades of cognitive linguistic anthropology, it's hard. I'm not, but you're right, you're right, it is, you're right, but it's just not that easy. According to the literature, and it, it is controversial, and I'm not a linguistic anthropologist, so I'm not gonna argue, because uh, I have no idea. I mean, I've read the literature, I know what they say. I'm just telling you what they would argue. Yes, please. Um, no, really, I'm interested in the uh, uh, implants. <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, you got to think. It's 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 interesting that some of this you've got to think is also um, how would I put it? Okay, so uh, for example, um, Grindhouse. Grindhouse is coming out with like their V2, which does all kinds of amazing things with uh, gesture recognition and, and interaction, whatever. But their V1 of the North Star, um, it was specifically lights. It's lights that shine through your skin. This is an aesthetic project. You know, their first one was an aesthetic project. So when you think about it, it's part of this, I think, is that kind of, it's almost like getting a tattoo, you know? So, um, you know, some of this stuff, the point of it really is in and of itself to have the, the process occur and to have this as the end result. Um, you know, for some people, it's going to be the end result is trying to gain an ability. The end result's going to be trying to, you know, achieve these senses and it doesn't really matter how. For other people, it's, you know, I like this process and I'm, I'm doing this thing. So, you know, it's, yeah, I agree, they do have, I mean, you could probably make something like a ring that vibrates using a vibration motor and tie it into devices and you'd get, you know, a very similar effect. You could definitely have some, some system to do that. I'm not saying that uh, that wouldn't be useful. I'm not saying that it's not something worth pursuing for someone, but it's just not the, it's not the direction like I'm personally, it's, it's, I'm not looking for a simpler way to do this. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in kind of the biohack, can we integrate technology into the body type of solution? You know, there are other ways. Um, for example, on the other hand, uh, apparently Disney is patenting this thing. I don't know how it works at all, magic, Disney magic. 
um, but you can touch something and then by sending electricity through it, they can make you feel different things even though the actual surface is flat. Uh, and so if something like that comes out, yeah, it completely uh, undermines a lot of projects and you wouldn't need to cut yourself open and that's awesome. That's great. I mean, if something better comes out, then use that. If you don't have to cut yourself open, yeah. don't cut yourself open. That'd be great. Yeah, well, okay, so a lot of the stuff that we've been working on is stepping stones, you know? So you think about the magnets, like you were saying, a lot of it is that we're actually working on um, biocompatible coatings and, you know, having a, a slew of biocompatible coatings that work with different devices. And the end goal would be having some kind of interface. I mean, we're looking at interfacing the nervous system with devices, right? And, um, you know, really uh, something like going through the head, EKG, I'm sorry, uh, uh, EEG work and such, uh, it's, it's relatively limited because of, how much noise you have compared to trying to isolate signals and whatnot. But peripheral nervous system is, is relatively simple. Um, and, you know, things like, um, what was his name? You know who I'm thinking of, who, uh, he had the implant. Warwick? Yeah, I'm thinking of Warwick. You know, things like uh, Warwick going to the, uh, what was it, the ulnar? I, I don't know, I'm going off the top of my head. But, uh, uh, you know, and being able to interface with the nervous system, essentially. This is, this is kind of the direction we're, we're moving towards, right? So although, you know, magnets, they're, you know, it's a, it's a novelty, right? But uh, I think that you're not going to be able to find, if you could find a way to interface with your, with your nervous system without actually having an implant or something, that's great. I don't, I, I don't personally see that happening. So uh, part of what we're doing is just kind of building up all of our techniques and building up uh, uh, our, our knowledge base in order to have these larger projects that really will make a difference. Because, I mean, really magnets and ARFIDs are not... Um, it's not an amazing thing. It's not like it's really going to have some, once again, huge sweeping social change. You know? But once you get to something where you're actually having direct uh, nervous system interface with computers, that's, that's a whole different thing. And, and who's going to work on it is the question. Because um, you, know, you don't have Google working on a project like this because the liability associated with doing these types of procedures. You know? Google's not going to drill into someone's head and start putting in uh, uh, implants. You know, I mean, there's just so much here. Uh, the entire um, the way the medical system works is, you know, we, we don't, our medical system in the U.S. Uh, has no interest in making people better, okay, because, you know, any procedure comes with risk, and they weigh out the amount of risk versus um, the amount of benefit in terms of maintaining someone at what's considered a baseline human, right? So, uh, you know, they're not going to prescribe you modafinil because you want to be smarter, because there's a risk. Dude, you could die. I'm not going to risk my license prescribing you this crap so that you can stay up and, you know, write an extra, uh, you know, study more for your test or whatever, you know. It's uh, uh, really, they cut it off at that line where we're trying to maintain you as standard human. Whereas with grinders trying to push past that and willing to take on the, the risk, um, I think really that's what we need in order to get there. You know, I, it, there's just the way the system is built, um, corporations and such, they're blocked from kind of pursuing this, I think. I don't know if that makes sense. What other materials besides arcs and magnets are 
Do you want to talk about all the coatings? I mean, oh, the, God. The, the, the <laughs> are you talking coatings or devices? Oh, okay. I want to make a list. Uh, it's hard to say because a lot of them are pipe dreams. <laughs> um, if you want to actually produce things, um, you'd probably be better off talking to anybody from Grindhouse, um, talking to Ben, they're in the second row here. Um, I could list things off, but they'll be able to give you way more details about it. Um, various kinds of uh, inter uh, interactive sensory things. Um, that's the worst answer. Various kinds of interaction things. Okay, so a list of things that pre-exist. How about that? So you have, for example, the, uh, the North Star, which is uh, an implant. You can talk to, if you'd like to see some in, in vivo, vitro? I don't know. Uh, hey, there you go. Um, the, the newer version actually does interface uh, wirelessly. It does do gesture recognition, right? Yeah. So and it's really done cool. now, right? No, but like version two is done? There you yeah, go. Beautiful. Another good person to talk to. Yeah, and so that's a real thing being implanted. That's done, and it's far more invasive than a magnet, you know. But uh, there's also um, what are they? Fireflies, which are essentially uh, uh, tritium-filled vials that are um, uh, they're actually um, uh, what is it? They have uh, well, they're basically shielded so that you're not getting a dose of radiation or a significant dose of radiation. But it, it can be implanted and actually shines through. So if you had a tattoo or whatnot, you're going to have light shining through. Also, hey, we got one down here. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, it's it's not hot. <laughs> it's uh, it's, yeah, it's good. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not bad. It's like an X-ray every day. That actually opens up some cool <laughs> stuff for uh, backlit LCD displays under the skin. I know someone working on that as well. Yeah, uh, that you wouldn't have to have a battery in it because it's the tritium lighting it up. Um, you would still need a battery for the other part, but the light is the part that is obviously going to take a lot of energy. Yeah, of course, there's a number of variants uh, of on the magnet thing. There's uh, the bottle nose, which essentially extends the use of magnets. Magnets by themselves, they're not really that useful, but when you can wear something that is uh, essentially transmitting a magnetic field and uh, it's telling you about, for example, maybe ambient radiation or pressure or anything you would want to sense, you know, you can actually wear a device that is going to um, transmit to your magnet and then you can be picking up that sense, which, you know, extends the, the utility of magnets quite a bit. Um, what else exists? Uh, another project uh, I'm really excited about that has kind of been delayed quite a bit is a dead man switch, uh, where <laughs> it is just measuring whether you're alive, and if you're not, it sends out a message to delete your emails and whatever else that you don't want to have around when you're dead, which I think is a really good idea. It's really important for like political activism and that kind of thing. It's, uh, it's really important. No problem. There's other ones too, I just, off the top of my There's head. There's a lot of stuff, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh yeah, we haven't mentioned the Lovetron. The Lovetron yeah. is, uh, oh, I have his card right here. Uh, it's from Rich Lee. Uh, he is the CEO of Cyborgasmics, uh, and it's an implantable in, in, uh, vibration device. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and Ben, and ben also had a, a big part in that. So don't forget Ben. Sorry, Ben. I was just reading the card. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> too late now. Like transdermals? You know what, I've done implants where I implanted like a USB 
uh, memory stick hub thing and this and that. Um, you know, it's doable. The thing that's going to push it is actually there was um, some new technology that's come out regarding, um, what is it called? Uh, essentially a prosthetics, right? Uh, most prosthetics kind of suck to wear because uh, of the way it interfaces with you know, your leg or whatever you're wearing. And uh, they've come up with a new design that passes through the skin. It can be bound directly to bone. And uh, it's kind of like a porous titanium with, um, I don't remember off the top of my head the, the material, but it's, it's coated with a material essentially that a bone can interweave with, you know, arteries and whatnot can move in. Um, it actually is good enough that you can pass it through the skin and the skin will um, bond in that area to where you no longer have this being a risk of infection. So you have people that are, you know, significantly better uh, results from their prosthetics because it's, it's like an extension of them, you know. Um, and based off of this, it's the same concept. If you wanted something that actually is going to be transdermal, you know, you wanted something to, to be able to, hey, look, I'm going to plug into myself and do this and this. It's doable. There's a guy, um, he actually he spoke here last year. It's, um, I don't remember his real name, but it's Kyron X. Um, Justin. Justin, yeah. He spoke here apparently last year, and uh, he's done some uh, experiments with this to where he coded a few things with this material to see how they bind, you know. And that's, that once again gets back into this whole thing of like, we talk about coatings and it's like, that's a huge topic because, you know, for example, that coating, it's great for the application of having something that's transdermal, you know, very specific with a lot of other stuff. You don't want your, you don't want your tissue to bind to it. You know, if I have a, you know, for example, um, you know, some of these other implants, you know, I, I've had to switch out implants on people and, and do some stuff. You don't want adhesion. It really makes it terrible. You know, sometimes you're going to have to take a, a, you know, a tool and actually have to work around and break off all the adhesion of tissue bound to this implant. You know? So in that case, you want something with a different coating. You know? uh, that, that is actually a major part of the stuff people are working on, is, is not only building the devices, but you know, finding an appropriate way to uh, shape the devices and coat the devices. And, and there's a lot to it with that. That's you know, definitely a big issue. I mean, how many different ways have you tried to code a vibrating, uh, uh, like the, the Bluetooth headset? You oh, need, yeah. Because you need something that moves, but you also need something that doesn't move, so... Yeah, so it takes a while. Yeah. It's a lot of trial and error in the back. Oh, so you're thinking like MRIs. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, I went into uh, an MRI with uh, an M30, M31. Uh, it can be painful. You get real close to it, and uh, man, it, it hurts. But if, let's say you had to get an MRI. If you wrapped your finger with a piece of tape, you should be okay. I mean, it's not going to pull out of the skin. Um, it will apply a lot of pressure, and it will kind of hurt. That said, uh, another person I work with who had a magnet went in and was working with a patient at the MRI, and I had to cut her magnet out later. It uh, somehow uh, caused uh, a breach in the, in the coating and ended up causing rejection. So um, in terms of the MRI itself, since the locations we're doing it, uh, doing it at, um, you know, it, you're going to lose resolution in that area. So if you were getting specifically an MRI of your finger and you needed a high resolution, you're, it's that. But I mean, really, how often does that happen? I mean, we do MRIs of the head. We do MRIs of, you know, the abdomen. And you know, these are the things that matter. Yeah. It's, a, it's a question of lifestyle. Like I was saying, I, I know a couple of people that, um, there are a couple, and they wanted to get the so-called lover's magnets, where they get one kind of in their hands somewhere so they can hold hands, and they're really attracted to each other, and that's the pun, and it's funny, and whatever. Um, but like, before they did it, he went skateboarding and fell down and scraped off his whole hand, and he was like, wait a second, it's probably not a good spot, given that I skateboard a lot, it's going to come up pretty much immediately. Hmm. 
Any other questions? Yes. It's really cool. DARPA has a paper that was written like in, I think it was 2010 or something, where they're talking about, uh, um, basically talking about some of these things and things that they could do in terms of, you know, how useful it is to try to personally enhance soldiers with either, you know, implantable technology or uh, nootropics or, or and whatnot. And um, really the conclusion of the paper was, you know, watch what people are doing and not just industry watch like the individuals because somebody's going to come up with something interesting and uh, then you go to defcon and they're like all over the biohack village just like you know it's uh, it was really interesting um you know i don't think it's something like they aren't interested or that you know they're like you know they can't see the potential that we see or something i just don't know how they could legally get away with these things you know there's just so much to it to where um you know, I mean, essentially, you are getting into human experimentation. Um, you're, and uh, it's not with an end in mind that has to do with healing or curing someone. You know, so if when you're saying like, you know, hey, we want to be able to have this person have this cool feature or whatever, um, you're not curing them. And if it goes wrong, they could die. So how do you justify this? You know, I, we're just not set up. I mean, it's just something that hasn't been addressed. There's no leeway for that at this point. I, I just don't think that there's a, a, a path for them, you know? Like the actual infrared device under the skin, you mean? Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know anybody working on that specifically. But there is? Tim put his hand up. Of course Tim put his hand up. for when we're cut off for time either. So. Oh, dude, we're out of here. Okay. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> thanks. And a special thanks to the team at Body Hacks for sharing this recording with us. And remember, if you're able to make it out to Austin, Texas for Body Hacking Con, 
it'll be worth the trip. For the panels and the topics covered are just a small portion of the action. With the activities and networking available with the other attendees is the true payoff. So our loyal listeners, if you'd like to know more about this journey we take weekly, check out the DMP homepage, dangerousminds.io, or go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Dangerous Minds Podcast. Please keep in mind, events like these are listed on our DMP Google Calendar. And if you have an event that you would like to add to it, please email us more information about it at info at dangerousminds.io. Now, all of us would like to thank you for joining us as we further explore the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, and implantable technology today. If you like the programming we share and the work we are doing in the community, please support us by going to our Patreon page and becoming a supporter at www.patreon.com forward slash dangerous minds. And please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments, and perhaps we might one day talk to you about the work and our projects you're exploring and developing. Until next week, Seek the spark. Scientific progression is steamrolling, there's no preventing it going ahead. Now we're intrinsically linked with technology, biology as we know it is dead. <laughs>